0: Hi, my friend. I'd like to begin with a question. A question you cannot help ask yourself when you read the life of Marilyn Monroe and then the life of Therese of Lisieux. What do you think would have happened if little Therese has been born in the hallway of the MGM studio in Hollywood of a mother who was not completely there? And what if little Norma Jean, who was to become Marilyn Monroe, had been born in the Martin family, a loving Catholic family, living in a calm little village of Normandy, France. Where would holiness have blossomed? That is my question. It might be nice to have a saint looking like Marine Monroe on the calendar, wouldn't it? Why not? On the other hand, a for fortress among the stars of Hollywood, having to dress up her soul with as much care as her body, that might have been a bit difficult, no? Although, again, why not? I am convinced that a personality as strong as Little Flower would have been quite capable of rattling the inhuman laws of show business. After all, stranger things have happened. Actually, I hope I'm not going to shock you, but let me say that, in fact, Marilyn and Therese had both the same essential calling, and they both proved it. Both went to the very extreme of their quest for love, they pursued this quest with all their strength, their energy, even their life, and they died for it. They staked everything they had on achieving their goal. They burnt every bridge, and each could have said in her own way, Love, I want you, I shall have you. This is the calling that they have in common the tireless determination to find love. And it completely overshadows any differences in their birth, their family, and social milieu. As he had so often demonstrated, the Lord is capable of allowing sainthood to emerge in the most surprising context. So just in case you're wondering what my point is, please be reassured. I have no intention whatsoever of canonizing Marilyn. Anyway, that doesn't depend on me. But just to be perfectly clear from the outset, I am praying that she's in heaven. And because I'm a kind of fan of the Lord's mercy, I have every hope that he will listen to my prayer because he loves it so much when we pray for sinners, including public figures. One of the things that strengthened my hope to see Mary in heaven someday is meditating in my heart on the very moving dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. When I think about how he was able to turn her heart around in just a few minutes, it's amazing. Then I have hope that he could do the same for Marilyn. By the way, did you notice that the Samaritan woman had more husbands than Marilyn? Well, that's not the point. The point is that if Marilyn only knew the true faith of Jesus at the moment of her death, then in that very special interval of time between the lethal effect of the barbiturates and her final entry into eternity, it is possible that, looking at such a face, she cried out, Jesus, save me! Save me, Jesus! Let us not forget that Jesus has one main job to do, and that is to be a savior. So the more his child signals his distress, the faster he comes running, and it is what he does. Well, we'll come back to that. You know that from the cradle on, Marilyn experienced life's cruelties. She had no father because he was a passing lover of her mother's, and so Marilyn invented a father for herself, the father of her dreams. He was akin to the handsome, irresistible Clark Gable, who fascinated her on screen. As for her mother, who was psychologically and emotionally unbalanced, she too was very absent from Marilyn's childhood. In fact, from the earliest days of Marilyn's life, her mother had been in and out of mental health institutions. And as a result of her mother's madness, which prevented any real communication between them, Marilyn received very little affection from her mother. Another important detail in the biography of Marilyn's mother is that when she was not locked up in a mental institution, she worked as a film editor for MGM Paramount Studios. This means that Marilyn was in the front row for all the newest and most glamorous movies. And because her mother had no time to take care of her daughter, Marilyn was entrusted to the care of neighbors who watched over her for a few dollars a week. These neighbors were very kind, austere, and pious people. Marilyn stayed with them until the age of seven. While there, she began to pray and sing hymns, There, she was also exposed to the gospel every day. She went to Sunday school and loved to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves me, this I know. How it is that she didn't remember this later on? Well, the family raised their children with strict moral values. And this was the puritanical America of the 20s. But then, at the age of seven, Marilyn completely forgot the God of her childhood When she moved away to live with a couple of English actors who quickly plunged her into a very different world, an artistic and bohemian world where the very idea of God was completely absent. Marilyn reached the age of reason and started to search for her own identity. Her conscience, which was still naive and pure, was strongly impacted by the complete shift in values. For instance, in her first family, Going to the movies and drinking alcohol were sins. In the new culture, people would watch two movies a day, and no one seemed to worry about it. She couldn't put her hand on which way of life was true, what was right, what was wrong. As there was no one to sit down with her and gently answer her question, no one. At this time, she also developed physically into a mature young woman. She amazed people with her extraordinary vitality. Psychologically, however, she was developing a kind of insecurity, even a fear of the outside world. And this was also the time when her mother completely disappeared from her life, forcibly taken in a psychiatrist's hospital after an episode of delirium. It was the same hospital where her mother's parents, mentally ill, Marilyn's grandparents, had just died. She was seven years old and couldn't call anyone mommy just like Therese of Lisieux. And strangely enough, she seems to bear it much better than Therese. She got to know her new environment, which was completely atheist and depraved. I think that this is when, in her new family, Marion began to feel an emptiness inside. She had lost her bearings, something children so badly need, and she actually never found them again. This is when her natural enthusiasm her capacity to marvel and thrill began to slowly erode. Her mother remained in the hospital, the old English couple ended up going back to England, and once again, Marilyn was fostered by another set of neighbors. That is, until the day she found herself with her suitcases facing a tall gate with a sign saying, Los Angeles Orphans Home Society, known today as Hollygrove. When she realized, what had happened, she broke down screaming that she was not an orphan, that she would not go inside and that her mother was alive, but the poor thing was taken into the home by force. Can you imagine those years spent in the orphanage with all the traumas that go along with it? It should be pointed out, however, she did not suffer the mistreatment she described later on to attract attention. Not that. She was simply bored bored, bored to death there. there was one educator for 10 children. In other words, she lived in a complete emotional flatland and it was a deep mutilation of her future capacity for happiness. She made many attempts to run away because for a teenager that kind of boredom is very destructive. In fact, it is possible that it is where Marilyn's future despair took root. Later, After three failed marriages, she found herself alone in a room in New York, drunk on champagne and ready to commit suicide. She was completely alone to face a frightening spiritual void. And because no one taught her how to face loneliness, reliving that nightmare at the orphanage as an adult was quite traumatic. I want to cry every time I think about all those teenagers who are not given any clue that God has an exciting plan for their lives and who self-destruct because they are so bored inside their souls. Or the teenager who never hears about love without emotional conditions or contraceptives. Or the teenager who never hears about life without also hearing at the same time about unemployment statistics and to whom you can or cannot talk about God because anyway, he's dead. And something much better has now been found thanks to perhaps psychology, new age, and many other substitutes of the same kind. To come back to Marilyn, the movies on Saturday afternoons offered a small escape from her boredom. She loved the movies, and she was quite knowledgeable about them, thanks to her mother. In fact, one of her biographers said that she loved movies as passionately as a sick person hangs on to life in hope of remission. That was it exactly. She compensated for what she was missing by dreaming of the great Hollywood stars. And it is easy to imagine the kind of fascination she must have felt for this shiny world of American movies. It was the golden age of Hollywood, the dream machine in full throttle, and Marilyn, more than anyone, found food for her heart and soul in the Saturday afternoon world of dreams. It's important to understand that Marilyn drew her understanding of love love that she had never experienced personally from the movies and only from the movies. And that is also where she shaped her mental pattern for the way to find love, namely through seduction, the kind of super seduction that the stars had. And since only love can make you happy, the conclusion was simple for her. To be happy in life, you have to be very, very attractive. And then watch out. It was precisely at that moment, in the middle of the teenage years, that Marilyn experienced something that completely upset her existence, something that struck her directly in the heart. The story is so simple and commonplace that it could almost go unnoticed. But you will see how deeply the event resounded in the core of Marilyn's being. One rainy day, Marilyn was feeling rather depressed, and she ran away from the orphanage. She was brought back by a policeman and taken to the office of a woman from the orphanage that she hardly knew and almost never saw. Of course, she expected to be scolded and maybe even beaten. The lady came up to her with a great deal of kindness, gave her dry clothes to replace her own, which were soaked in the rain. And the lady took her in her arms and told her that she was lovely and had marvelous skin. She called her my child. And even took out her compact to powder Marilyn's face. And for the girl, this was a complete illumination, the light in her life. She later wrote, This was the first time in my life I felt loved. No one ever noticed my face or hair or me before. And here her entire life turned upside down. Because for the first time, she finally got a taste of human tenderness. For her, that was a true miracle. And again, she developed an association of factors that was to take her a long way. If I'm loved, it is because I'm pretty and my skin is soft. And so what did she start doing to make up for all those years without love? She completely devoted herself to her body. If the beauty of her body could trigger so much tenderness, then that was what she would stake everything on. Thanks to that, she would finally get what she wanted most in the world, to be loved. And for her, being loved was already a matter of life and death. And that is how, without her even realizing it, the spirit of idolatry took shape inside Marilyn, and this being that had been so terribly wounded by life. How can the absence of God and the lack of relationship with him lead a heart that is thirsting for love to fall into idolatry? When the lack of human love greens up the heart, then one is ready for anything to find love. For Marilyn, the search for love led her to engage in endless make sessions. She spent hours and hours of studying herself from every angle in front of the mirror to see how she could seduce and be noticed, something which all her photographers were to marvel at later on, because she could position herself in front of a camera like no one else. She had the reputation of being almost magical. Of course, we have to imagine the kind of atmosphere she was living in as well. On the one hand, the flat and dreary life lacks luster often, and on the other hand, the revelation of a world that crackled with excitement and captivating adventures and romantic stories as shown in Hollywood's movies. And because teenagers identify with what they admire, Marilyn became to mimic the great stars and focus on her own character watching herself live and checking people's reactions to her after her first marriage failed actually she was married off to escape another stint of the orphanage she was marvelously successful in a modeling agency she became increasingly passionate about her own image she began a touchingly relentless struggle to enter into the spiral of greed she really believed that thanks to her body and image, everyone would love her. All the men would lust after her, and at last she would be the queen. She would be the star of all stars. Now let's go to Little Flower. Actually, Therese experienced something similar. You know, I really love to establish a parallel between the two events. Therese was at that key age between childhood and adolescence. She was 11 when she received her first Holy Communion. You should really read those pages where she describes this dream day when she received communion. She prepared herself for it lovingly, making sure that her heart would be filled with magnificent flowers for the first coming of Jesus. She simply said, Oh, how sweet was the first kiss of Jesus to my soul. That day, in a great anointing, in a great gentleness, Jerez's life completely turned around. She wrote, It was a kiss of love. I felt love, and I too said, I love you. I give myself to you forever. It should be said that for years before her first communion, Therese shared glances with Jesus. She spoke with him, and she often offered him what she called her little flowers. They were simply her little hidden sacrifices. But on that day, it was no longer just a glance. It was a real fusion of love. Jesus and Therese became one. And she felt that she had just tasted heaven. At that age, little tres was still a tiny little thing, but she had understood everything. With that first kiss, as she said, she aimed straight for what had been revealed to her as the most wonderful of treasures, being loved by Jesus and becoming one with him. What better definition of heaven could one possibly find? I can't imagine. And Therese staked everything on getting and keeping that treasure. Just like in the parable of the field and the treasure in the gospel, she sold everything she had to acquire the treasure of all treasures, and she succeeded. She burned all her entire life just to get it. You see, there is such a contrast between she and Marilyn. As for Marilyn, after the experience of happiness through love, she did the same thing Therese did. She sacrificed everything to get that love in a lasting way and to finally get her fill. We will see that although they both have the same aim, the path they followed was different. And this is where we come to the tragedy of the story. Not all paths lead to where we expect them to go. Some paths kill instead of give life. And the reason why I wanted to tell this story is because Marilyn Journey, and the journeys of all the Marylins in our world today simply tears me apart because a whole life cries out for God. It is a cry that is stifled and violent, and that I want to echo myself, because it is so painful to see such a huge potential for life, for giving, such an immensity capacity for love, reduced to be the blackest distress. Let's try to analyze things in the light of God, so that this never happens again. And like Marilyn. Therese was born in a loving and wholesome family, where the relationship between family members was very tangible, very respectful, and also very demanding. The key values in life were non-negotiable. When reading the beautiful book about Mr. and Mrs. Louise and Zélie Martin, I couldn't help think, but these people had everything it takes to make sense? Sense S-A-I-N-T-S. For one, Therese absorbed her knowledge about God and his love from the time when she was a baby. She even said that when she reached the age of three, she never refused God anything. That's not exactly ordinary. So, of course, it was a gift from above. But the soil had been properly tilled for the seeds to grow. Mr. and Mr. Martin cherished their daughter, and they were true icons of God's love to the little girl. Therese wrote about the fact that her first memories were of smiles and tender caresses. She was very sociable, naturally spontaneous, and very cheerful. Her mother said that she laughed all day. She also had a very lively intelligence. For Therese, the family home was like a little paradise. The Lord was very present in the home. First thing in the morning, she was asked, Did you give your heart to Jesus? Then suddenly, at the age of four, It all came crashing down for Therese. Mrs. Martin died. The shock was so great that Therese's sunny personality began to change. The wound was very deep. She became shy, fearful in front of people, hypersensitive, and she would cry for trifles all the time. Thankfully, her sisters and her father surrounded her with a great deal of affection. In fact, she chose her sister Pauline as a second mother, and she became her role model. Although Therese was quite small, she had a wonderfully natural wisdom. She understood, for example, that our stay on earth is only temporary, and that the essence of life lay elsewhere. In fact, her three brothers also died. And then, a few years later, when she was nine, her sister Pauline left home forever to become a Carmelite nun. It was another shock for her, and Therese wrote about this. Pauline was lost to me, almost as if she had died. How could I express the anguish of my heart? In a single moment, I understood what life was. I saw that it was nothing but suffering and constant separation. I cried with bitter tears. This episode brings to mind a question. What is worse, the slow erosion of a child's heart when deprived of his real mother or the trauma of a brutal break in the relationship between the child and his mother. What is clear is that Therese almost broke to pieces when she lost her mother. At the age of nine, after her second little mother, Pauline, left, she began having nervous tremors and hallucinations. She felt dreadful and had completely unexplained terrors. She would find herself in bed, dazed and numb. No one really knew what was wrong with her. She couldn't sleep. She didn't speak anymore. Her eyes were glazed, and this lasted many months. You can imagine the chain of intense prayer that formed around her. And then one day she tried to cry, Mommy, Mommy! And she turned toward the statue of Our Lady, which was standing in front of her, facing the bed. And the Mother of God turned her face toward her and smiled at her. A ravishing smile, Therese later wrote. The Blessed Virgin Mary seemed to be beautiful, so beautiful, that I had never seen anything so beautiful. And through this smile, Therese was instantly healed. The tenderness of the Mother of God penetrated into the very depth of her soul and delivered her from her terrible ailment. Afterwards, she never had any rapture of some of those extraordinary things you often find in the lives of the saints. But until the end of her life, she remained a person who had been miraculously cured by the Blessed Mother. And that is something you do not forget. I imagine that some people might say, yes, well, I would have been happy with that for the rest of my days too, to tell you the truth, me too. (laughs) It is no doubt that this grace enabled little Tres, once she had become a Carmelite nun, to say the sentence which has since become famous, I prefer the monotony of sacrifice to ecstasy. She had known the rapture, and the ecstasy of the mystical life through the smile of Our Lady, even though it was not exactly what we would call a rapture experience. It was, however, a fantastic eruption of the supernatural in her life, an incredible revelation of the beauty of heaven and of the beauty that conveys love. That is what is important, the fact that this experience poured love directly into her soul. In one instant, What the soul knows through faith becomes a real experience. It knows that it is infinitely loved, knows that rapture is real, and that for all eternity, the soul will be carried away into this infinite sharing of love, will be seen by love, and will contemplate love in its inexpressible beauty. So, all right, if, in order to obtain that, I must walk for a few years in the monotony of sacrifice, Then this monotony of sacrifice becomes more than desirable to me. I must say that I do have a difference of opinion with Therese. I like to address the saints in heaven with a bit of humor. So I tell Therese that personally, contrary to her, I prefer ecstasy to the monotony of the sacrifice. And I can see that in fact, deep down, Therese feels the same way. That she too would much prefer a rapture. In fact, her whole being is straining towards this rapture of love. It is no wonder that the Lord allowed her at the end of her life with the outcome of her tuberculosis to die in a marvelous ecstasy before the eyes of her sisters. You could say then that Therese lived in the expectation of this rapture, this embrace of love with her spouse. She desired this more than anything else. She preferred this to everything. And here I just have to think of the patience And fierce ingenuity of a usurer who will always manage to squeeze the most he can from anything he does. With Therese, it was the same thing. She would do whatever it took to turn everything into love. She wrote, You know it, my God. I have never wanted anything but to love you. You have no other ambition. Your love came to me when I was a child, grew with me, and now it is so deep that I can't see the end of it. Love attracts love. And so, my Jesus, my love is straining towards you, wishing and wanting to fill the deep that is pulling it in. Well, I think that the great driver in the life of Therese, her inner energy, that was truly fail-proof, was her early understanding of the ultimate meaning of her existence, understanding the why and the wherefore of her life, and then to marvel at it. Why did she enter the Carmel? Why did she embrace with such courage this life of hidden and monotonous sacrifices? It is because very early on, she felt the intoxication of being loved, of being loved by love himself. For her, the Carmel was a way of never leaving him for a second. It was the royal adventure of a permanent heart-to-heart, an intimate heart-to-heart that was hidden from the eyes of the world. In fact, it was the dream of all those who marry for love. I could well imagine Therese being the patron saint of lovers. And here, we touch upon the crux of our subject, which is true adoration. I write here of adoration in spirit of truth, which is so closely linked to the depth of love that Therese was talking about earlier. To adore basically means to direct one's whole being towards, one's mouth toward, to pray in the direction of. And we cannot adore without having had the experience of the abyss that is within us. To adore is to project our own abyss into the abyss of God. The deep calls upon deep, as we read in the Psalms. And that is why adoration is something everyone can experience as the simplest of all mystical experiences. I would even go so far as to say that the need to adore is the most visceral need human beings have. Who among us can say that he has never perceived within himself the existential end of love and life who has never felt the pain of feeling the hollow in his heart well to adore is simply to plunge that deep that abyss that we have within our being into the even deeper abyss of the heart of God, to fling our thirst into him. He who is the wellspring, the one and only spring, that is capable of truly quenching this thirst. You know, I really love the words of Therese, who explains this so well. Only you, O Jesus, can content my soul, because I have an infinite need to love. That's it, our own infinite desire meeting the fullness of giving. Marilyn could have said that second part of the sentence herself, I have an infinite need to love. Her whole behavior as an adult proves it. But from whom was she expecting to receive this love? She sought to quench that thirst for love in many people. And what a tragedy for her, the constant chasing after love until her hope gave out, until she despaired and ended her life. In Therese's poetic words, look what she wrote. Oh, how my heart would spend itself to bless. It has such need to prove its tenderness. And yet, what heart can my heart comprehend? What heart shall always love me without end? All in vain for such return seek I. Jesus alone can satisfy my soul. Nought else contents or charms me here below. Jérôme was blessed in that very early on, she found, so to speak, the address on the phone number of the one who could satisfy her soul, and she was able to give herself completely to this love affair. And this blessing saved her many wanderings and betrayals. She herself saw this very clearly. She says, with a heart such as mine, I would have let myself be caught and my wings clipped. And the genius inspired by the Holy Spirit is that She understood that it was her smallness, her weakness, her total incapacity to do great things on her own that most attracted God's love to her. And this is where we truly see the chasm, the huge divide between this relation of the Holy Spirit and that which is murmured in our ears by the spirit of the world, that spirit of the world which is castigated by Jesus because it leads to destruction and death. The world tells us over and over, that if we want to be successful and beloved, we must have riches. We must be beautiful, intelligent, smart, young and dynamic, profitable. We must be at the top of our game and hopefully in good health. In short, the standards are harsh. If you lose these qualities, you are thrown to the dogs and abandoned. You are of no interest to anyone. And advertising, in fact, the whole economic system is entirely based on this mindset. Hence, the terrible anguish of losing one's health and beauty, which is why so many of our contemporaries are haunted by the fear of aging. They're haunted by the fear of any kind of weakness. The world is a place of perfect cruelty. The psychiatrist's hospitals are filled with depressed human beings who are the victims of this inhuman mentality. I can personally confirm the reality of this vision of love. So what a breath of fresh air when we read Therese. What a splendid God she reveals to us. What a liberation. You are poor, so you are the dearest. You don't have much to give, so everything that is his is yours. He gives you everything. You are wounded, so that means that you are capable more than anyone else of understanding his deepest mystery and of becoming one with him. You are too weak to climb the stairs yourself? Then jump into his arms and he will carry you up to the heights. This, dear brothers and sisters, is the true face of love that Therese revealed to us. Thank you, little Therese. Thank you for giving the world a whiff of the Beatitudes. I can personally confirm the reality of this vision of love that Therese had because I have been living in a Catholic community since the age of 28. And in this community, the strongest bond between us isn't our gifts our quality of riches it is the fact that many times we have forgiven each other's failings and flaws and weaknesses but what really lies at the heart of our brotherly love is that our weaknesses are obvious and undisguised in the community you know our failings are exposed in the trusting nakedness and this is in fact our true nature since who among us is not poor? Everyone is poor, but some know it, some do not, or not yet. Who among us possesses imperishable gifts? That is the greatest message of Therese for our time. When the hardness of human relationships beats us down, it is our weakness that attracts true love. Not weakness in the sense of uh, machiness of course. It is the weakness of one who says, alone, I can do nothing. I was speaking earlier on about the deep rift between this revelation of the Holy Spirit and the theories imposed upon us by the spirit of the world. That is where Marilyn was the victim of a confusion for which she paid a very high price. In fact, she paid for it with her life. She wanted to become rich to acquire love since in her mind, beauty was what attracted love. She deceived herself by thinking that this was her only merit. So I choose this story because it is so symbolic. It is true that Marin is a symbol of our society and not just a sex symbol as she was often called, but a symbol because like society, she gradually conceived of her own great project for her life and dreamt that one day she would become a great star. So I hope I won't be shocking you by telling that Marin's first steps on this road were like Therese at the same age. They were both aiming for the same thing, absolute love and glory. They were on a relentless hunt for glory. And they were right because they were both made for glory, as we all are, because God created us for glory. One day we will be entirely glorified, our body, our heart, our mind, everything in us. We all carry that deep intuition. Now, I really must quote Therese herself, or else you won't believe me. She didn't watch dozens of movies but she read dozens of books. She was passionate about stories with knights and great French heroes like Joan of Arc, for example. She says, The good Lord was leading me to understand that true glory is glory that lasts forever. And that is exactly the kind of glory that she wanted. In a way, she quite simply always wanted nothing but the best. She writes, I thought I was born for glory. And as I looked for ways of achieving it, The good Lord inspired within me the thought that there was no need to accomplish some brilliant action, but simply to hide away and practice virtue. The good Lord also enabled me to understand that my glory would be not visible to the mortal eyes, but that it would consist in becoming a great saint. There you are, nothing short of sanctity. And when Therese walked through the gates of the Carmel, she went on her way to glory. The glory that Jesus showed her, the glory that would come from him and not from her. The glory that he himself communicated to her, drop after drop, in the hidden fire of her love. He gave her his own glory, because he would make her a queen. Didn't Jesus say in the Gospel of John, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. Jesus is speaking to his father, John 17. And Therese was to become a great saint. She was certain of it because she knew full well that God never places a desire in our heart without wanting to fulfill it. So you see, the scope of Therese's ambition is truly admirable. How proud the Lord must have been to see her so ambitious when he suffers so much from seeing us live well below his means. So often... He is obliged to pack up his wildest and most beautiful plants for us just because we do not believe that he can love us that much. This certainly was not a figment of Therese's imagination because we truly see that the Lord gave a splendid confirmation of all her inspirations. Therese not only became a great saint in heaven, but even after her death, her writing spread through the whole world like wildfire. Her book became an extraordinary bestseller. What an exceptional carrier for this obscure little Carmelite, barely out of adolescence, who didn't have even a degree, and who had tuberculosis. Today, tens of thousands of Christians and non-Christians devour her book, which is a story of a soul, and begin to live this spirituality. And that is how her glory became visible in the eyes of people. It was also the fruit of a great deal of suffering, The Lord had revealed to her shortly before her death that she would be extraordinarily successful and he told her that everyone would love her. I must underline the fact that this glory was entirely connected to love as it is always the case for true glory that comes from God. Glory that comes from people mainly leads to division and jealousy and then just evaporates forevermore. So we understand that this is where Marilyn got lost she walked straight into a dead end. So you see, I'm touched by her because just like Therese, she desired to go a long way in her wild desire to be loved, in her ambition to do better than everyone else. When the first photographer with whom she lived asked her to pose for nude pictures, she became irritated. She would tell him, no, you don't understand. I'm going to become a great star. And she was as convinced of that as Thérèse was convinced that she was going to become a great saint, and I like that, her intuition basically was right. She wanted absolute love. where well, she was completely mistaken because she didn't know the only true source of love. She expected to receive it all from men. She expected the glory that come from people, and that is called vain glory. Indeed, instead of picking the sweet fruit of love, after having briefly enjoyed being the center of the world, she suddenly found herself again embracing the emptiness. Of course, it is difficult to say exactly what God's plan was for Marilyn and her life, since she was not listening out for the Holy Spirit. What might think that she was truly made for a public career? She had many gifts for such a purpose, and in addition to her beauty, she was also very enterprising. She knew what she wanted, and she knew how to work hard to get it. She also had that sense that artists have of picking up the gray, dull, nameless magma of the daily grind and turning it into beauty. She also had that sense that artists have of picking up the gray, dull, nameless magma of the daily grind and turning it into beauty. She truly searched for the quality of beauty and feeling that triggers beauty. She didn't work for money. No, her thing was really beauty, beauty, beauty to elicit people's emotions through beauty. But as I was saying, instead of connecting with the source, she connected with her own self, her own ego. And so she started out on that slippery slope that has ruined so many good artists and became fascinated with her own gifts. One could even say that she started to adore her own image. Of course, she wanted others to adore it as well. And here is where we come up against what truly constitutes idolatry. Idolatry means to adore an image. What a tragedy! She had inside of her this mad desire to adore, to plunge into a sea of love, and this desire gave her personal nobility. She had fantastic potential for adoration, which she diverted, probably unconsciously, to embrace her own image. And that is precisely when, without realizing it, she became destined to fall into despair. And because she was one to go all the way, That is when she sentenced herself to death. Now, whose fault can that be? Well, Therese received a faithful and loving spiritual education from childhood on. Marilyn, on the other hand, had no one to confide in. She was constantly left alone to her own fantasies. No one told her about the meaning of life. In one word, no one helped her to connect her desire to the one who could have so magnificently fulfilled it. In addition to that, she fell victim to one of those cults that abound in the United States, namely the Christian Church, where her best friend would sometimes take her. At that time, it was a rather esoteric sect where the triumph of the individual me, ego, prevailed over everything else and where the voice of instinct and feeling was supposed to be a manifestation of the divine spirit. And those were the only tools that she received to deal with life. And in her defense, I must add that she was also probably a victim of the lukewarm attitudes of Christians, of those who remain silent about their faith in order to respect the belief of others. Well, I forget who said that every time we remain silent about the gospel, we are killing those who die for lack of having heard it. Look at all the teenagers who are wandering today with anguish. What is the point of living? Where are their shepherds? Who is standing up for them, to draw them to the light, the true light, the light that will not deceive them bitterly? Who? One day I asked myself the following question. If I had had to evangelize Marilyn when she was 17 or 18 years old, and she already knew that she was on the way to glory, what would I have said to her to really reach out to her heart, to touch her in her deepest soul? First of all, I would have asked her for advice on makeup because she was exceptionally good in that area. And it's always useful to get beauty tips. Then I would have mentioned a passage from the Bible, because one day I had this sudden flash about a text in Genesis, and I told myself, now this is written for her. She would have really loved this story. I would have told her the story of Adam and Eve, and of God himself. Here you have Adam and Eve who sinned. They ate the fruit from the tree, so they disobeyed, and suddenly they realize. That they are naked. They feel the need to cover their nakedness and so they make a loincloth using leaves from a fig tree. Can you imagine what they look like standing around, the two of them wearing that loincloth? In addition to that, because they were struck by fear, their hands were probably trembling and those fig leaves must have been really very badly sewn together. But God's heart was bleeding. He was completely torn up by this sin, because it created a rift between himself and Adam and Eve. He knew that this separation, this break in communication, would lead to terrible suffering for mankind. And what was so touching on the part of God is that his first gesture, the very first thing he does for man after the fall, and listen to this carefully, Marilyn, was to dress the man and the woman with his own hands, tenderly, like a mother. He healed the wound of shame and ridicule by dressing them with a tunic. And because the Lord always gives something that comes from inside his being, we will never be able to even imagine the beauty of this clothing and the incredible grace that it carried with it. God has filled it with his own beauty. One never thinks about the fact that God is the very first fashion designer in history and that his label is unique. Today, He would be on the front page of every fashion magazine. And why was this the first thing that God did to dress the man and the woman who had just been wounded to death? It is because God also loves our bodies, not just our souls. He proved it by taking on a body for himself. He became man in order to live among us. He has infinite respect for our bodies and cannot stand it when they are ridiculed or debased. He knows that our bodies are temples temples of his presence in a word, that our bodies are his own house and he contemplates our body with infinite tenderness. He knows that they are made for glory because our body will be resurrected and they will be glorified. You know, I detest philosophies or religions that have contempt for the body. For instance, in the idea of reincarnation, the body is nothing but an envelope to be thrown out. This is contrary to the wisdom of God. It is striking to see the testimony of saints of different periods of time who have seen the Blessed Mother, the New Eve. All of them tell us that her beauty is indescribable, both her face and her clothes, and they cannot find the word that will express the grace that emanates from her. But of course this makes sense. It is God's own beauty that is in her, and that is what Marilyn wanted at all costs. So did little Therese, and in her own way, through a completely different path. Everything God gives to man and woman, Marilyn desired to the highest degree. She wanted to be divinely beautiful, to be the best dressed, to be awash in tenderness, to be desired and madly loved by a man, and to give love. She was really a woman in the fullest sense and in every way. So to come back to my question about evangelizing, I would say this to her. Marilyn, if you truly want beauty, Beauty that will never be ruined by wrinkles, by car accidents or skin disease. Turn to the one who can give it to you and begin by admiring his own beauty and adoring it. And he will give it to you in turn through the mysterious osmosis that comes through adoration. You want clothes that reveal your beauty? Then begin with some chastity because the lust through which you are seen sticks to you like slime. And also hurts those who look at you that way. Ask for the advice of the greatest designer in the world. He will surely have some ideas for you. Your body come out of his hands, and he will know how to honor it more than you ever could on your own. You want tender, loving care, the kind of care you were so cruelly deprived of in your life? Well, prepare to receive it. He will send those who will give it to you. But Marilyn. Don't ever fall into the trap of provoking loving tenderness with your sex appeal. Because people will come to you, and you will want to give your whole self. But they will tell you more or less explicitly, Give me your body, Marilyn. You can keep your heart for yourself. And then you will suffer a cruel split inside yourself. You want love. So be as cunning as serpents and as innocent as doves. Don't forget that no one on this earth is a source of love. Do not think creatures are that source. You are too thirsty to be knocking on the wrong door. Listen to the one who says to you, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Marilyn, place your mouth on his heart and drink. Then let him speak to you. He alone can tell you what true love is and inspire this love in those around you. Connect yourself to him, because no one will love you as he loves you. Okay, that is my evangelization. Too bad Marilyn is no longer here to answer me. Marilyn quickly climbed up the ladder of success that led to celebrity. First, through photography. Then, in the movies, she achieved a dream, which she threw herself at. Mind, body, and soul. You know her story. She quickly became the rage of screen, earning millions of dollars for her producers. Everyone wanted her. Her picture was plashed all over billboards and the walls of people's homes. Every woman wanted to be like her and especially look like her. Some people even had their face lifted and even redone. They had to have her nose, her mouth and everything like hers. Men dreamt of holding her in their arms, to say the least. In short, she really became the great star in every meaning of the word. The character she played, though, was rather limited. She was a beautiful, super sexy blonde who was a bit naive and childlike. She was a woman so seductive that no man could resist her. She was a teaser par excellence who makes every other woman seem pathetically pale by comparison. In a word, she was the perfect embodiment of a woman who allowed herself to be an object of a woman born to entice, but a woman who was not much good for anything else. At the beginning, Marine played that game, fitting the image completely. Then one day, she had a fit. She was sick of it and tired of such a futile image of herself. And around the same time, as her second marriage also collapsed into total failure, she had this breakdown she became more and more uncomfortable with the artificial exaltation of her personality and identity. And so she gradually came to feel the deep rift between her public image, the image people expected of her, and her real poverty, her genuine nagging want, her difficulty in finding happiness, her deep loneliness, her chronic insomnias and maybe also the haunting specter of madness that she may have inherited from her mother and grandparents. Anguish began to take over. She saw a psychiatrist every day. She stuffed herself with medication. I think that at that moment, she would have loved to cry out that she was not just a desirable body, that she had a heart and a soul, that she had something to give other than just her legendary sensuality. I'm sure she wanted to scream a refusal to be locked up in some character who was nothing more than just luscious curves and a siren smile. But for Marilyn, the agent's instructions were clear. You stick with that character because that's where the money is. And if you don't, we don't care about you anymore. I wonder if the Lord spoke to her during that period. Let's not forget that she has spent the first seven years of her life in a very Christian family. In Marilyn's biographies, I looked for a long time to find a really spiritual thing she may have said, and it was difficult. But I finally find one. At the eighth of her glory, she often repeated to people closest to her the following sentence that Jesus pronounced. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? How lucid she was! She had a deep awareness of the fact that she was losing her way. Between two public appearances, where she would shine and glitter to wow the audience, she found herself completely helpless and distraught, like an abandoned child, not knowing what to do with herself, faced with emptiness and boredom, lying around on her bed for days on end, dreaming and going nuts. So she would drink her champagne, her eyes staring into nothingness while everyone was busy adoring her super glorious image. She saw herself without makeup, her hair undone in front of the mirror with her dirty clothes that she didn't even have the courage to change. She was nobody. Marilyn, don't you know that your identity, your true identity is resting in the heart of God, your creator? He knows exactly who you are. He knows your deep beauty, which is unique in the whole world. So why are you always expecting men to reveal to you who you are? True life does not depend on how you look, on your clothes, on your showing up in nightclubs. You are much more than all that. You don't need to dazzle everyone with your acts to be worthy of love. Why are you expecting love and ecstasy to come from the angry wolves who surround you, just waiting to eat you up alive? And why do you ignore him who died for loving you and who is begging you not to lose your soul in this way? Personally, I don't believe in fate. I believe that Marilyn could very well have become a great saint simply by remaining faithful to the inspiration sent to her by the Lord instead of conforming to the world where God is held in contempt. As for Therese, little flower, she could very well have become an insufferable, spoiled little girl of the bourgeoisie Self-satisfied and constantly thinking only on her own advantage, and believing that everything was owed to her, think how spoiled and even adored she was by her father. I don't mean that literally, of course. Intelligent as she was, she could have twisted everyone around her little finger. In fact, she herself pointed out that she felt capable of committing the worst sins. But no, she welcomed grace day after day with gratitude and she fought to keep it. One thing is certain, Marilyn did not receive grace in any way inferior to that of Therese. The history of the church shows that people who were much more debauched than she achieved a very high degree of holiness. In the last years of her life, when Marilyn realized that her life was basically nothing but emptiness, loneliness and desolation, when she saw also that she was hurting people, breaking of so many couples, so many families. When she realized that she could not have children, her heart collapsed, especially since her third marriage was failing, that all her hopes was dashed and that she was becoming unwanted on the film sets. Actually, she was constantly late. So in her sleepless nights, she would be haunted by desperation that tortured her and ate her up inside. That is the moment in her life where she could have cried out Jesus, save me. I'm not worthy, but take me in your arms and forgive me. Yes, she could have done that. Who knows what was happening in her mind except God alone. But I think that her mistake at that point was to believe that she was not still loved by him, that she was rejected by the most wonderful of all children of men. She did not believe that his mercy was for her. She believed that this ultimate door to her salvation was shut. And this killed her. She committed suicide in her Brentwood home in Los Angeles on August 5th, 1962. She was 36 years old. It was the night of the vigil of the transfiguration. I would like you to be reassured my story doesn't stop here. I suggest we do a little flashback sequence some 70 years before to a day that really has to do with Marilyn well before she was born. The story takes us to the Carmel Monastery in Lisieux, which Little Flower had just joined. On that day, suddenly, she saw something. She saw Jesus on the cross. But what she noticed was just one detail. Blood was dripping from his pierced hands. His blood dripped onto the ground. And there was no one to receive it. It was just being wasted, sinking into the dust. Little Flower was shaken to the depth of her soul. In a single instant, she understood God's tragedy and man's tragedy. Each has a thirst. Another is quenching it. God yearns for man, but man doesn't come to drink his love from the source. And man, is desperately in need of God because the human heart is made for him. Man is simply dying of thirst right next to the wellspring. Marilyn died of thirst right next to the wellspring. And the wellspring is tortured, By not being able to give its water, God is agonizing like a lover whose love is burned and despised. Little flower simply could not stand it, so she offered herself up to become a kind of go-between for the two who are thirsting for love. This way, they would be able to quench one another's longing and heal one another. Who better than Therese could understand the gaping wound in a heart that is torn by not being able to hold the object of its love? At the age of four, after her mother's death, Little Flower fell gravely ill. For years, she was haunted by the distress of those who did not know that they were loved by God, loved by love himself. She knew that there was not a worse infirmity in the life of man. And yet, before that day, she had never understood with such clarity that Jesus was the poorest, the most helpless of beggars of love. He comes to us as if begging for our yes, like a child who has nothing that can force our answer. Jesus respects us much too much for that. And so, in order for Jesus to at last be loved and for people to at last be able to throw themselves into his arms, especially the greatest sinners, she had an idea, or rather a fantastic inspiration, she offered herself to merciful love. What does that mean? Oh, of course, she kept following her famous little way, seizing every opportunity, every event in daily life and turning it into an act of love. But this offering, so to speak, gave God permission to use her as fertile ground upon which his mercy could shower and spread into people's hearts. This would be the battlefield where mercy offered would be in bloody combat with man's indifference. It was a story of divine mercy and man's refusal of it. By offering herself in this way, Therese prepared herself to suffer in the fight. But the stakes were so high and so marvelous that she would eventually bring thousands and thousands of sinners to God. She would break through the gates of her camel to reach out to them spiritually. She said that her offering would extend, I quote now, throughout the world and until the consummation of all the centuries. How to resist such an inner drive? It was stronger than she. The huge compassion for soul that the Lord placed in her heart burned her, she said. And suddenly, I was seized by such a violent love of God that I can only explain it by saying that it was as if I had been plunged in. And oh, what a fire. And oh, what sweetness at the same time. I was burning with love, and I felt that just one minute more, one second more, and I could have not stood this blaze without dying. And here she is, ready now for her martyrdom of love. She was going to bring this extraordinary fire of love to the souls that were the most distant, the most depraved, the fathers from God, the very souls that are consciously saying no to his love and his forgiveness. A while later, Therese came, as she said, to sit at the table of the sinners, as Jesus did 2,000 years ago, not like a rich guest or a star, definitely not. She had said yes to spiritual battle, and so she found herself in the middle of the deathly fight between the light and the darkness, between infinite love and the obstinated refusal of love. As a result of her offering herself up entirely, She was filled with the feelings and the thoughts of those who do not know God. She was tortured in the same way they are tortured. She ate the bread of their despair and their bitterness and her usual consolations disappeared. It was the agony of the dark abyssal night of those who walk in the darkness. It was like sinking into hell. She said, I never thought it would be possible to suffer this much. Never, never. I can only make sense of it through the burning desire I have to save souls. This is normal. She plunged into the very heart of God. So how could one be surprised that she was pierced through and through by the sword of sin? She experienced the dead full suffering of despair to such a degree that she even had thought of suicide. If I hadn't had faith, she said, I would have ended my life without hesitation. Exactly like Marilyn. Where Therese should have seen the sky, she only saw a wall, a wall that rose straight to the heavens. By God's permission, Satan tried to make her believe that heaven does not exist. But though she intensively shared the secret affliction of sinners and unbelievers, she did not stop at her own pain. She continued to offer everything and to believe, despite the darkness. She even said, that for the sake of the people around her, she was as cheerful as a bird. She could have drowned hook, line, and sinker into the pool of the enemy and diabolical forces that had invaded her. But love was more powerful. Little Flower marched on from one victory to the next. And because she experienced those three years of cruel trials in faith and in love, she reached into the hardest hearts to pour love into them. And that is how she became the mother of so many souls that found light thanks to her. She won, she said, yes, to so many small and large sufferings that they obliterated all the no's, both small and large, of those who refuse God. As she had correctly prophesied, her victories will continue until the end of time. Do you know someone who doesn't believe, someone who is wandering around, without a goal, or who is suffering? Pray to Therese. You'll see. She has a solid reputation now, and not only in the church. Okay, let's have an example. Even in show business, Therese is active and super efficient. Look at Edith Piaf, a great famous French singer. When she was a little girl, Edith was almost blind, and she was cured in Lisieux, thanks to little Therese. So every day, and especially before her shows, Edith Piaf would pray to her on her knees. Therese became her closest friend. She would comfort her, and she stayed with Edith until she died. And for our Marilyn, struggling in the thorn of life, who for so long now hadn't been singing, Jesus love me, Jesus love me, this I know, but discovered to her horror that she had staked her whole life on empty values, she did not realize that at that point more than ever, she had become Therese's child. That is what we call the communion of saints. I think that little flower was present, though invisibly, by Marilyn's side during those long, long nights when Marilyn was nursing her own destruction as the only possible outcome. Yes, I dare say that little flower was there near Marilyn on that last evening when the massive dose of baby Tourette's plunged her into her final agony because Therese, since her offering to God's mercy could no longer be cut off from the fate of sinners. Imagine that evening when Marilyn appeared before her creator and savior. Therese probably slipped her note that read, Don't worry Marilyn, I've got a passport for you. We both went through the same things. I know the hell you went through. I was there too for years. Just tell Jesus that you're me and that I'm you. And then come kiss. And do this very humbly, with great humility. Come kiss his heart that gives a true fire and that has been calling you by name forever. You've come home, Marilyn. Here he is, the one you were looking for. The picture of Marilyn and Therese could be posted side by side, just to show that there is no misery without an answer in mercy. And also to show that the people who love and adore God with all their hearts and all their strength on this earth. These people will be escorts on the path to heaven for all the others who invested in vanity and fake idols. The true adorers are god trackers, and they carry on their shoulders all the lost children and bring them to the Father. They are one with him. I remember something that Marthe Robin, a great French mystic, said to a friend who was lamenting the proliferation of gangs in France. Marta exclaimed, Oh, how I would love to go to heaven with the hoodlums. Therese loved the theater. She would have made an excellent stage director. So now, to end this city, allow me to give free reins to my imagination. I am imagining Marilyn talking with Therese in heaven. And Marilyn telling Therese, Therese, when I look at your life, it's incredible. If I had had just a quarter of the love you had for Jesus, I would have staked my entire life on him and on him alone. I would have played all the women on the gospel, even the Virgin Mary. I would have advertised him all over. In fact, you would have had seen his image flashing all over the screens in Hollywood. All of America would have converted. And then Little Trace speaks to Marilyn. Marilyn, when I look at your life, I cry. I could never have put up with everything you had to put up with. Knowing myself, I wouldn't have been able to wait until the age of 36 to commit suicide. I don't know how you did it. Woking up in the morning without being able to tell yourself that your suffering had some meaning, without being able to rest your head on a real heart that never abandoned you. I don't know how you held out for so long in desperation, in a life that was crumbling from every corner. But you see, Marilyn, basically, I'm grateful to you because it is thanks to you that I joined the Carmel 30 years before your birth without even knowing you. It is your distress that made me lock myself up in this voluntary prison. It is your cry that haunted me day and night and broke my heart. It is because of that cry that I had the courage to give my life drop after drop and to descend into hell to bring you back to Jesus It is because of you, Marilyn, and all the other Marilyns in the world that I had to love, just had to, all the way, had to die from loving. Because Marilyn, you know what? Let me tell you my secret. You who always wanted to be the queen of love, Jesus is the one who taught me what the highest form of love is. And this is it. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for once, friends.